Good day, everybody, and welcome back to Trojan Talk. I'm Ryan Young, and we have an awesome show for you today. I know I always say we have a great show, but today is an awesome show. We had some fun segments with Max Brown, including one that you're definitely going to want to hear. It's about 25 minutes or so into the podcast. It's kind of the major what-if, look-back question that USC fans have right now as they see former interim coach Ed Orgeron leading LSU to the top of the national rankings, big win over Alabama. Max was on that 2013 team with Orgeron, has some great kind of behind-the-scenes recollections and details from that, so you want to hear that segment. I wanted to give you some quick updates at the top of the podcast, though, on things that we covered during the show that have been updated since. Cal has announced that Chase Garbers will start at quarterback, so that's no longer a question. Uh, I get Max's take on, on what that means for for Cal going from Devin Monster to Chase Garbers. And some USC injury notes that came out after Max and I taped the show Thursday. Running back Stephen Carr has continued to progress all week, looks on track to play on Saturday as he returns from his hamstring injury. No word on what kind of load or role he might be able to handle, but expect him to be out there. Vavai Malapai is a little behind Carr. It sounds like he's a game-time decision and is probably more likely to return next week. But either way, that backfield will get a little bit more depth on Saturday and probably even more uh, by the finale against UCLA in the bowl game. On the defensive side, linebacker Palaie Naatiote it was trending the opposite direction with his ankle and knee. It sounds like he's probably doubtful to play. And then, yes, wide receiver Tyler Vaughns has been fighting through an ankle injury all week. Got the feeling that he was going to try and give it a go Saturday, but could be limited and maybe too limited. We'll see what happens in pregame. Those are the updates. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to Trojan Talk. This is our second podcast of the week, which you know is by now is our matchup breakdown podcast where we lean heavily on our USC football analyst, Max Brown, my co-host on Trojan Talk, the former USC quarterback, and like I said, our Trojansports.com analyst this season. Max, how's it going? It's going good. I posted a story on Instagram saying we only have like yeah, th- three or so more left. Uh, Got to make the most of these, these final couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to maximize it. We're going to maximize it. Now, whether the USC football team maximizes the rest of their <laughs> opportunities is a, is a different talking point. We are going to get heavy into the matchup with Cal and, and really get Max's breakdown on what USC's facing. There's some interesting quarterback situations there with uh, Garbers is back healthy, but as of uh, Thursday, they hadn't declared him the starter. Devin Monster was coming off his best game of the season. We'll get into all that, but we're going to start with some USC topics first. And Max and I actually had an interesting debate about Keenan Christen back on Monday when we taped our early in the week podcast. And then like an hour later, Clay Helton announced Keenan's definitely not going to register. He's playing the rest of the season. So I kind of scrapped that segment. It'll live on in the Trojan Talk archives, you know, somewhere in the, the, the deep cuts, the director's cut edition, never, never before heard segments. But we're going to revisit that a little bit and talk about Keenan Christian today. We're going to get Max's recollections from a pretty interesting period of USC football history that has become relevant again. I'll just leave that as a tease right there, and then we'll get into the game. With that, Max, the news of the week, like I said, was we get a final answer on Keenan Christian. He's not going to redshirt, even though Vi Malapai and Stephen Carr both continue to progress and get closer and closer to playing this week. As of the time of taping, we're taping this Thursday afternoon. 
the last we had heard was that they were both day to day and, and it was going to develop through the week. So I'll get a f- formal update and tack them on to the front of the podcast here. But basically the coaching staff still didn't know for sure what they were going to have at the start of the week with Malapai and Carr and had to make a decision on the fly, as Clay Helton put it. And they talked to Keenan. They said, we'd like to play you the rest of the season. We'd like to have that depth. And if we're going to do that, we're going to commit to giving you a significant role. We'll make it worth your while. He was on board. So that's that's where things are. What's your initial reaction to that decision? And like, like we talked about in the Never Heard segment on Monday, the fan base has been pretty much just play the guy, play the guy, play the guy. Whereas I saw some real value in at least having that option down the road, depending on how his career plays out of having that extra year. They won't have that now. They're going forward with this. What are your thoughts? To me, the biggest piece is what you uh, kind of just said right there in terms of Clay said, we promise we'll have a big role for you. If that's the case, then I got no problem with him playing because this is a good good chunk of the season that, that he would have played. I mean, half the season, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unexpected year for him, but uh, it's still a solid year. I think the thing where I would get pissed if I was, was, uh, was Keenan, if I was his family, is if we go through this game and he's – Splitting carries a little bit, and Stephen Carr's getting a good chunk, and who knows kind of where Vi's at. And if that's the case, then uh, I'm I'm not in favor for that. I mean, if I'm Keenan Christian, this is this is his career on the line. This is his um, leverage. This is his one shot at college football. To me, it's not worth it if he's going to have a very small role or minimum minimal role to kind of go out there and play in these in these last two games. And I say two games instead of three because you'd like to think with the with the three or four week rest period in between the end of the season and likely the bowl game that would allow those guys to get back maybe a marquee step as well so that's why I say two games but at the end of the day I'm not naive to the fact that anytime you're part of a team you sign up for situations like this I think the beauty of this rule is that he even has this this option to 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 maybe uh to sit that fourth game or not Definitely a sticky situation, but like you said, in the unheard segment that didn't come to life, we kind of talked about it on Monday, <laughs> that if I was Keenan Christian, I would have had a, mon- a, a meeting with, with Jinx and Clay on, on Monday and said, Coach, here's what I'm thinking, and be brutally honest with them and, and kind of say those factors that I just mentioned right there, and then have another meeting basically tonight and say, all right, where are we, where are we at? We being where's Vi at, where's Steven at, where's uh, Graham Harrell's mindset at with the play calling and kind of the workload there and then go from there. But there's a team element factor, but there's also a Keenan Christian and his one shot at college football factor. And, yeah, I net out on the player side, but I'm aware that uh, each player has a team commitment. Well, that's the thing. They didn't have to make this decision on Monday or Sunday as they did. If they weren't sure how Vi or Carr were going to progress this week, you can still wait through the week. I mean, ultimately, you're not making any decision until he plays or doesn't play in the games there, are they? Unless so, they know Vi or Steven are going to be out. Because if those guys are out, then I don't mind the Monday decision, but I'm with you. If there's a shot where they're in and are out, then maybe you wait. But then as I say that out loud, the player in me knows that Monday is when you're game planning. So your game plan might switch whether you have Keenan Christian in the game plan versus out of it. So, I mean, like, okay, who, who, who knows? I mean, if Tuesday's your biggest practice day, do you want – I can't blame a coach's mindset for saying we want to be transparent with the team. We want Keenan to know – we don't want Keenan as a young, true freshman running back to be on the ropes Friday night or Thursday night saying, I'm not sure if I'm in or I'm out, and he missed a week of practice maybe, or he wasn't all in or anything like that. 
So I kind of see where I, I, I can make an argument for, uh, for making an announcement on Monday, but I think a huge factor in that is just kind of where are Steven and where are Viat in their injury? To me, that's the biggest factor. Yeah, they were both active all week in practice, and it was just going to kind of be a let's see how they, re- they react to this. Let's see if there's swelling, if you know, just how, how they respond to their first full week of practice. And as I know that I gave an update at the top of the show, which was taped after we're doing this segment to let you know where that finally is. But I think we're in agreement that they've made this decision. The key now is to make it worthwhile. And I, I still have my doubts. I still I, We've seen how they balance running backs all season long. I'll be disappointed for Keenan Christian if he goes out there and gets six carries. I'll be Saturday pissed. I'll be and, coming and on it. next week's pod fired up. That that's bad. Yeah. That's bad ball if that happens. But I mean, we'll at, at this point, he almost has to be a co-focal point of the rushing attack to me to make this worthwhile. Because, like you said, it, it is only two games. Because the bowl game is is such a separate entity. I don't think that Marquis Step is going to return by then. He's uh, He's been out of practice walking around. He's not in a boot anymore, but he's still walking pretty gingerly on that ankle. I just don't see the upside and even exposing him uh, to the bowl game. But even still, by that point, you know for sure you're going to have Vi and Carr for the bowl game. So it's really a decision about two games, and therefore the evaluation is about how they use him in these two games. Now, I mentioned earlier, it's been surprising to me that almost unanimously, almost consensus, the fan opinion has been, why is there even a decision to make? The guy's playing well, keep playing him. Running backs don't stay five years, this and that. I get all of that, and I understand what, what the likelihood and odds are, but especially in Keenan Christian's case, he's not Marquis Step. He's not already kind of what he's going to be. We don't know what he's going to be in time. When he's more, a more polished rusher, when his body is more able to handle a fuller load. I mean, again, Mike Jinks made the point this week. He goes, if you watched him in the second half, he was a different running back last week. He was, he was a different player, and we knew that would be the case, and that's why we've been very careful with him. So he's going to be a different guy in the future, and it's not like there's a guarantee that he's going to be a focal point next year either. All these guys are possibly back next year. So next year could be another season where he's not getting a lion's share of carries. In fact, I'll almost guarantee it is. He's going to be a complimentary piece next year. Then the year after that, let's say it's, it's thunder and lightning, him and Step, and all of a sudden he's three years in now and overlaps with Step for a year or two then you still don't know how his career plays out. So what if he gets to his fourth year and it's finally his time to be to have his biggest role yet and he gets hurt halfway through? At that point, you're going to go, man, I wish we had that extra year for Keenan Christian to come back healthy and put it all together in one full season. That's why I've been trying to play the devil's advocate role and argue the other side of the coin where there is merit to the red shirt, or there was at least before this decision, and that's why it is a big decision. It's not just an afterthought. It is a substantial decision that the USC staff has made. Yeah, to me, I look at it, and Keenan Christian's a just different type of back. Like you said, the back end of his career, I envision it being a lot different than the front end. Right now, he's a speedster, kind of getting open lane, and he's gone. I envision him being a lot more polished later in his career. And um, I was sitting here kind of thinking when you said the argument uh, or the fan argument that running backs don't stay the full full length of years. And there's definitely some truth to that, right? You kind of go back on, on SC running backs in recent memory. Buck Allen did not stay the full time, um, but he had the option to. He had, he, I think he left it for four years, had the fifth year. 
And then you talk about uh, Rojo left early. But then other guys, I mean, Justin Davis, he stayed the whole time. Aka Cedric Ware stayed the whole time. I'm, I'm, and those guys, those are good backs, right? I mean, Justin Davis is on NFL roster. At least he's right there. Aka Cedric Ware just got called up to... Uh, to the Buccaneers, so they're still they're NFL worthy backs. Uh, Trey Madden's another back in recent memory. He stayed the full time, and he had injuries, so he's a guy that really used, utilized his fifth year. So, to me, sure, big big time backs, the Rojos, the guys that are kind of surefire NFL guys. I'm with you there. I'm with you there that uh, they're not going to stay the full four or five years. But on the other hand, at this time in Justin Davis's career, his his true freshman year, everyone was saying he's three and done. He's special. He was starting as a true freshman. And this is 2013, starting as a true freshman, doing some great things. He gets banged up. He uses his, his whole time. So you just never know what's going to happen with these guys' career, especially at the running back position where you get injured, especially with the guy like Keenan Christian who's going to see his body change more than most of these guys he he's gonna have the of all those names i just listed he's gonna have the biggest body transformation of anyone so yeah just a bunch of factors at play and like you said you never know what's gonna happen anytime you can bring leverage onto the player's side i'm all for it yeah so at this point i mean just the reality he's gonna be a junior before he really gets a large role in this offense because now it's always possible that something happens this offseason with vi or Carr. But let's just assume they're all back next year. You have all four running backs back next season. No one's going to be dominating that backfield. We're going to have the same debates next year about Marquis Stepp's usage because they're going to be trying to find work for Vi or for Carr. And where does Keenan even fit into that? So you're talking his junior year now. It's going to be the first time when he has even a chance for a sizable role. And then maybe his senior year is his best chance to be the clear guy. And if he gets hurt that season, then it's just – you're really going to look back on this. The other factor people raised is, well, USC is going to keep bringing in running backs, so there's always going to be someone competing with him. Sure, but they brought in one guy last year, him. They currently have nobody committed in this class, and most of the top running backs are already gone. So this class is not going to be a, a rich running back haul for USC. And so there's already a bit of separation there where – you're talking about a guy in the 2021 class maybe is, is the next guy that's going to be pushing him in the future. So there's a lot of moving parts here. It's, it's a really interesting decision. I think your point about Justin Davis is, is really intriguing. That's a great comp, a great example of how you just you can't totally project what the guy's going to be in the future. Just, 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 to, the, just to add on that yeah. one more time, I remember, so I came in with Justin Davis, spring of 13. I remember at spring ball, so he should have been a senior in high school. That spring ball, I'll never forget – Kiffin said on the headset um, at that time, he's like, "That guy's gonna win the Heisman Trophy." And Kit and that wow. And, and, wow, and every and no one, no one pushed back. That as a high school senior, he had an unreal spring. Great, it was awesome. Like, and and no one pushed back on that. I was like, "All right, I'm I'm bought on, I bought into this." He still had a very good SC career. I think he maybe have hit hit his ceiling quicker than most, and then didn't have a ton of kind of upside to go from there but still an unreal back if you had justin davis here and a year out you'd be uh, you'd be sitting pretty but just kind of keep that in mind in terms of 2013 justin davis and you fast forward to 2016 he was sitting next to me for first game against alabama as a senior just as a solid usc running back as a good usc running back but not necessarily heisman next reggie bush so you just never know what happens yeah uh, it's, it's really interesting so another topic on the running back front, we had maybe one of the most 
insightful and candid interviews of the year with Vi Malapai on Tuesday. Where we just I thought you were about to say about... Mike Jinx. Mike Jinx is my guy. I thought you were about to say Jinx, but uh, okay. <laughs> you know I love Jinx. I, no, he, if, if I'm going to go back and rank the most entertaining interviews of the year, Jinx is definitely going to be have at least one or two submissions in the top ten. He's been great. Drevno's, Vi... Drevno usually brings some juice, too. I had, uh, I had him on the phone today. But, uh, yeah, what you got he, with Vi? I also talked talk to Drevno this week. We, we can get into that for a little bit. <laughs> Vi, though, so we kind of went back, and you know, just, it's just the usual back and forth about, man, how tough has this been to have to miss this large chunk of the season, et cetera, et cetera. And he kind of opened some crevices of, like, you know, it, it was my fault early on. I was playing through it, and we kept prodding. And he basically said his knee was never right. So he, he got injured at the start of training camp and came back, you know, with like a week and a half before the season – and hadn't really practiced much, but no one thought much of it because no one really knew the extent of the injury. So everyone just assumed, oh, he's back, he's fine. He was never right. We asked him, when did you feel the best? And he goes, the first practice. <laughs> it's been all downhill since then. And so he goes through the first part of the season, and he's not even telling the trainers. Like his knee is swelling up every game, and he's not even telling the trainers, hey, my knee is swelling. Because he, he wants to be on the field. He wants to play through it. It's the Arian Foster factor. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That, I mean, I say that. I remember when Arian Foster, there was like the story of uh, before he made his big climb with Houston, he was in training camp trying to fight for a roster spot. His knee's all messed up, but he's saying, I can't sit out. If I sit out, I'm going to lose my spot. I totally get that. I, like, I mean, I remember when I was at SC, I had a bad sprained ankle in fall camp, and I was like, I can't sit out for a practice. I got a job to win. I, I mean, yeah. if, if I sit out for practice, that, that might be my window. I mean, you, and at that time, Vi, I'm sure, saw what Marquis Stepp did in spring ball, saw, no, everyone saw what Stephen Carr could do. So I think good for him for being transparent with that. But to me, I mean, that, that's going to that, be a similar mold for SC here in the coming years when you have just a stockpile backfield. Guys are going to have a hard time, uh, if they're wired that way, guys are going to have a hard time kind of saying, hey, I'm, uh, I'm banged up because they want the carries just like uh, we all would. Yeah, no, exactly. And so, so he gets hurt in the BYU game during the game. That's kind of the first time we're clued into the fact that, oh, he's dealing with a knee thing again. And that's when he talks to the trainers, and, and he even goes, you know, I'm not sure if I should be saying this or what I should be saying, but like every game I was having to get treatment afterward for the swelling to go down, and the next day it swelled up again, and then after the game a big fat knee, and finally got to the point where, where they couldn't go on. But he put all the blame on himself. He goes, this, this was his quote, my mindset was if I'm going to keep playing, I'm not going to complain about it. I'm just going to keep playing and play the best of my ability. It took a toll on my body. That's on me, my fault. But what happened, like I said, everything happens for a reason. So it, it was just a very revealing and candid interview. He said, he goes, I'm seeing curves on my knee now that I haven't seen since the summer. Like, because it's finally not swelling. The procedure he had after the Notre Dame game uh, solved the issue. But that's kind of a glimpse in, into what he's been through. And now, f- fans will take this different ways. Some will go, oh, man, that, that guy's tough. He was trying to play through it. Others will go, we're sitting here pushing for Marquis Step to play more, and this guy is is playing when he knows he's limited. <laughs> yeah, and I get that, but I can't blame him. I mean, if you're listening to this, put yourself in Vi's shoes. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily notice he had a, uh, a knee injury. I mean, we noticed the uh, Christian Rector sprained ankle. That was clear as right. day on film. E- exactly, yeah. I, don't, I mean, to Vi's credit, I didn't really notice it. Sure, you might want him like 
I mean, a little bit more, but uh, I was impressed with some of the cuts. That, that was always kind of, to me, the edge that I gave him over a step is maybe the, the one cut and get up field a little bit. But, yeah, I don't, I don't blame him, but it's a fair criticism when you're saying, gosh, dang it, we had a banged up back. We give those carries back in September to uh, Marquis Step, and now we'd have, ideally, if that didn't happen, we have a healthy uh, Vivaya Malapai in November when we need him. So I, I totally understand the frustration. I'm with you though. I, I don't blame him, but it's just it's just interesting to get an honest glimpse into a situation. Uh, here is an even better quote. He goes, "It was just bad. I couldn't compete to the best of my ability, and that's one of the hardest feelings when you're trying to contribute to the team, but you don't want to hurt the team." And that's what he was going through. I'm with you, though. There was no visible red flag to me. I wasn't watching those games going, oh, man, this guy is hurt. What's, what's he doing out there? It was, it was not like the Rector situation. So I'm not going to pile on and, and give him a hard time for it. I, I totally sympathize with what he was trying to do. But it's just interesting now to have a, a fuller insight and perspective into what he was going through there. Totally, totally. All right. So I want to get into a pretty topical narrative that USC fans have drudged up from uh, the, the depths. And there's a lot of what if going on right now. A lot of what if, what if USC had kept Ed Orgeron as head coach? They're watching Ed Orgeron lead LSU, number one LSU, to a win at Alabama last week. He's the buzz of college football right now, and the Trojans had him in their midst. He was the interim coach to end the 2013 season. Then the season-ending loss to UCLA, he's not retained. Sarkeesian comes in, and the narrative for both Ed O and for USC goes different paths, and it's worked out better for one than the other. We happen to have a guy on this podcast who was on that team. Max, you were there. I was there. I was in that very popular, uh, I guess popular is not the right word, but uh, there's been a lot of, lot, lot of media around that, that meeting that, with Pat Hayden at the end where they did not give Coach O the job and there was crying and his wife was there and there was players storming out and yelling things and all that. So I was there. It was hostile. I mean, as a player on that team, you wanted them to keep Coach O. And let me start with kind of two things. One, if you listen to me on the post-game radio show uh, after the game, this, this topic came up and I was talking about how I mean, timing does a lot for a coach. And what I meant by that is, like I said in the show, I'm just reiterating this, is Coach O is a great coach. He is awesome and deserves everything coming his way. But I think we also have to be aware of how timing makes an impact for coaches across all levels, especially in football, especially, I mean, in all sports. I, I made the comparison to how Oregon has two position coaches right now that were at USC that were not kept on. That, in, intuitively, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Same with LSU, guys that were fired from USC, now are coaches at LSU, and LSU's the number one team in the country. So a lot of it has to do with timing, a lot of it has to do with players. But with that said, dating back to 2013, like you said, Coach O goes 4-2 and two and with two losses to our rivals and doesn't get kept on. And at the time, I mean, could you have kept Coach O on? Yes, sure. I mean, I would have loved that as a player. But not being a prisoner of the moment at the time, there was a lot of fans saying, "All right, Coach O, he had a good, he had a very good Stanford win at the t- at the time, but doesn't get it done against the rivals." And at that time, there was a lot of people that were kind of wanting USC to turn the page on anything related to Lane Kiffin. So, like, we can't necessarily lose track of that. There also was doubts, which were obviously wrong, because Coach O has proven that 
but there were doubts at the time whether Coach O could truly lead or truly manage, but all the things that are part of being a head coach of a big-time program. Those hesitancies back then, which were common amongst a large portion of people, we can't forget about that, not saying it was common amongst me. I saw him on the headset, saw him him as a head coach, but that's what people were thinking. Those hesitancies are obviously dead wrong. Now, Coach O has proven those wrong. He's done a great job. And obviously, when you look back at that decision, that 2013 decision, that is a catastrophic mistake by the USC athletic department. You talk about you let Coach O go, and who knows what happens, but he could very well win a national championship that's what we're talking at lsu and he'll he would have knocked off the best college coach ever in nick saban that path he would have gone on the road to texas we all know the deals there that would that would be as impressive of a coaching job as we've seen not to mention he fired an offensive coordinator was willing to bring in a new offensive coordinator and change up the entire scheme at lsu to then go win ball games similar to what sc is trying to do now in terms of let's go to air raid not having as much success as maybe people would have hoped for. That's what Coach O's doing, and he potentially might get a get a national championship. But yeah, that 2013 decision, you go with Steve Sarkeesian versus Ed Orgeron, I mean, that's a catastrophic mistake. That, that, that whole Sark deal for those two years since he got hired, that was a disaster. And I'm happy the guy's healthy now. He's a guy that, by and large, was good to me. And I, I mean, feel feel bad that alcoholism kind of got in the way of that. But at that time, that was a that was that was terrible. You had a coach that was absolutely hammered at practices, leading your football team at the University of Southern California. That's crazy. That's unheard of. So the fact that that's what happened, and then it's obviously kind of bled over into these, I don't know, past four four years or so, right? I mean. Because, I mean, Clay Helton, Clay Helton was part of that Coach O stint there, part of, part of Steve Sarkeesian, obviously, kind of led on there. I guess the, what I'm trying to say there is you don't get Clay Helton if you probably if you, if you hire Coach Orgeron. That, that probably never happens. So it's bled into, I don't know, really six posts the past six years, which there's been some good times there for SC, right? You had a Rose Bowl. You had some, some solid things. But by and large, it hasn't been where SC's wanted it to be. And – you keep Coach O, this whole thing could be a lot different. You talk about it, a guy who can is an elite motivator. He's got uh, as good of any coach in terms of – he's got as good of a radar on his locker room and on his players as any coach. So, yeah, a miss by SC. But I circled all the way back to say you can't lose sight of factors at play, the timing. It feels like that LSU and Coach O marriage is, something, is, is very in sync I don't necessarily know if that happens at USC, post-sanctions, post-Kiffin. I mean, what happens there? But nevertheless, I think it would have been more positive than where we've been at since 2014 and on. But uh, fun to kind of play that game nonetheless. Yeah, I have a few more questions for you on that, but I also want to lend some more perspective as well. It, it's gone better than anyone could have expected at LSU. So everyone knew that Ed Orgeron was an elite recruiter. So if USC had kept him, at the very least, you know, we're getting a guy who's going to dominate recruiting out here and keep it going at the level it's been at. Can he be a head coach? Like you said, that was the question. Well, he goes to LSU. He's the defensive line coach for Les Miles. Les Miles gets fired midseason in 2016. LSU tries to hire some big names. They whiff on Tom Herman. I think they were linked to some other names. but Jimbo Fisher, I believe. Yeah, exactly. Jimbo Fisher, Tom Herman, they whiff on both of those, 
And the outside perspective was that Joe Oliva, the athletic director there, had totally bungled this search. And he's left with a constellation prize of promoting Les Miles' defensive line coach, now the head coach. Nobody was celebrating that hire at the time. So there is a lot of revisionist history going on now where everyone's saying, oh, it made total sense, it made total sense. Well, it, it does when you know everything that's happened since, but in that moment... When he got the LSU job, I was working in the SEC, people were laughing at, at Joe Oliva and going, this guy just signed the, the end of his tenure here with, with, with this hire. They're both going to be out in a year. That, that was the expectation and mindset of a lot of fans in the Southeast. What he's done there is incredible, and it's proven to be maybe a perfect fit for him, given his roots, where he's from, that area, you know, him just being a natural fit to the culture there. So it's worked out great. You don't know how it would have worked out at USC, but but you have to look back and, and go, it, like you said, probably better than the, than the alternative. So let me ask you a question. Did, did the players have a strong opinion those final weeks of the season? Were people invested in, is he going to stay? Are they going to hire somebody else? What was the, How much was it talked about in the locker room, and how much were players just really uh, riveted by what was going to happen there? If I recall correctly, I think I remember the night before our UCLA game, right? That would have been the last game of the season. Yeah. The night before the UCLA game, it was either Dion Bailey or George Huco or someone stood up and said, hey, young guys, if you want Coach O to be your coach of the future, go out and win this game tomorrow. We win. He might be our head coach. Or I don't know if they went that far, but it was basically like, hey, guys, we need to win for Coach O to get hired. If we... If we lose, he's probably fired. It was that blunt. So yes, we did talk about it. Yes, guys did know. I'll never forget the the meeting post-UCLA game where Pat Hayden let us all know that Coach O would not be coming back. I'll never forget Deion Bailey stood up, went to the doorbell or door. He was pissed, all that stuff. And he, he apologized. The coach said, Coach O, like, we lost it for you or something like that. Me, meaning the mindset as the players was, Coach, if we would have won that game versus UCLA, you would have a job. We didn't win that game, so he got fired, quote-unquote. And I'll never forget, like, Coach O was like, no, 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 it's not it. Like, don't put that stuff on you. But it was a it was a very emotional meeting. I'll never forget that. But the idea, I mean, it was not something that was just kind of hush-hush, kind of not thinking about it. It was very clear as day. It was very – it was on people's radar. People knew the de- deal. And as a player, everyone loves Coach O. And at the time, you had – Coach Kiffin, who was pretty, uh, I mean, kind of, kind of, kind of straight arrow kind of thing, right? Just like pretty, pretty blunt with things. Versus Coach O, he kind of let the reins up a little bit. I mean, practice was kind of all shells. I remember we got dessert for the first time at at dinner and stuff like that. Like a little bit more lenient, more fun. That was kind of what he infused into the program. So guys were all on board on Coach O. And uh, as a player, you wanted him to come back. All shells, man. You're gonna you're gonna break the uh, assumption of most fans here that that everyone but Clay Helton is any, is gridiron game. Any any listeners, uh, any any of you guys listening right now? I had five head coaches in college. Coach O had the lightest practices of any of them. I'll ask. I'll have an asterisk uh, next to that in that Coach O was my coach in November of an in season year or like in season November. Yeah. So it's a little different. Don't I mean? Don't take us out of context. It's a little bit different. But the idea that Coach O runs some vastly different practice schedule than uh, than Clay Helton is just is just not uh, not true. 
Yeah, well, it's, it, that what if is going to continue to populate and be a, a topic of, of discussion or lament for LSU fans or for USC fans as the rest of this LSU season plays out and as USC's coaching decision and whatever comes after that plays out. But it, it is a really interesting fork-in-the-road moment for this program, no doubt. All right, let's bring it back to present day. Let's focus on – let's turn the focus to this week's game, USC at Cal – the Golden Bears are 5-4, and 2-4 four, and four in the Pac-12. As you would expect from a Justin Wilcox team, they have a pretty strong defense, giving up 20.7 points per game. Offense, like last year, has not been there, averaging just 19.1 points per game. It's 117th in the FBS. Now, they've had a lot of issues at quarterback. They lost their starter, Chase Garbers, early in the season. They went to Devin Monster, who had some really rough moments, and even now has a completion percentage of 51% for the year. Yet, he's coming off his best game. His best game was last week, which makes an interesting situation for Cal, because Chase Garbers is back healthy now. He's cleared to return, but you have Monster coming off a game in which he passed for 230, three touchdowns, and rushed for 43 yards and a touchdown. By far his best game of the season. As of Thursday morning, it was still up in the air what Justin Wilcox and Cal were going to do with that position. They have the option of Garbers this week where they haven't in the past. Max, if you were Justin Wilcox, what's your move? Yeah, this is as easy of a decision as it gets. You go with Chase Garbers. Um, right. Yeah, to me, I mean, sure, solid game by Devin Mobster uh, last game, but it's, it, it, it's, it, it's not close to me. I think if you're a Cal fan, that's the pain, right? You start 4-0 in this season – and Chase Garbers took the step that many people hoped he would take in the offseason. I think last year it was a condensed offense. He did some things, but it really wasn't a whole lot. But then you kind of saw some pieces there. You, you, you saw the skill set was there. You hoped that, hey, come 2019, he'd make that step. He did make that step. Not going to say he's all world or anything like that, but he was definitely a functional quarterback back there. He gets hurt. Cal goes 0-4 since he got hurt. Then they get the the win last week, obviously, where Monster plays solid against Washington State. But if you have that decision, and uh, I'm Justin Wilcox, uh, I'm choosing uh, Chase Garbers all day. So what's the big difference for you between them? Uh, Garbers has completed 59.1% of his passes for 952 yards, eight touchdowns, two picks before he got hurt. What does he add to the offense if he is given the green light to, to start? that they were lacking these last ever many weeks? Yeah, it's the passing game. Uh, he's, like I said, I think functional is a good word. I mean, you call pass play, he, he can go operate your offense. He can work a progression. He can take a full field read and get to his third third progression and kind of do that. Versus Devin Monster, you get the vibe that it's really kind of a one-two takeoff type, type read. Um, he's not really going through full progression. The ball doesn't really pop off his hands. It's not really a sharp throw. And I'm really kind of getting on the kid right now, but that's just kind of that's just kind of what it is. He's coming from UCLA, goes to Cal. I mean, probably was thinking, hey, a decent little backup role, and then they, they've they've called on him to, to to make some plays, and it necessarily hasn't really hasn't really happened. But yeah, Gar- Garbers is is solid with his arm uh, or good with his arm, and then I would say solid with his legs. Monster's definitely way more of a runner. If Monster goes, they're going to do some quarterback run scheme type stuff. But even if Garbers wasn't there, he can take off and he can get you 8 or 10. It's definitely an element you have to respect. It's not something you would game plan for, but, uh, but it's certainly something you'd have to, you'd have to uh, prep for. Regardless, though, it's not like Cal's getting Trevor Lawrence back this week. So let's 
take the offense as a whole, Max, if you're Clancy Pendergast going against this Cal offense, what is your focal point? What is your concern? What stands out to you? Yeah, no, I love this question because if I'm Clancy, I'm a little bit more uneasy this week than last week. Last week it was ASU, and there was some quarterback stipulation uh, as well. You weren't sure whether it was going to be Daniels or, they, or whether they were going to have to go with the backup. And to me, yes, Daniels was more mobile, but like as a defensive coordinator, you're walking into that game with the same defensive game plan. You still had to play the, you still had to respect the run a little bit. You still were going to call the same level of blitzes. To me, if I'm Clancy, I was walking into this with the same game plan. This week, I'm walking in two different game plans based on the quarterback I get. Monster struggles to throw the football. Therefore, if you go against Monster, I'm doing a lot of one high. I'm doing a, I'm doing just about eight man in the box every single play. I am not getting beat on the ground, um, especially with Christopher Brown, their running back. I'm not getting beat with the run game if I play Monster. Versus if you go Garbers, you do a lot more too high. You respect the pass game. You play it just straight up. That's what I would do. I would just play straight up football. So to me, those are two different game plans. That was not necessarily the case versus ASU. To me, the discrepancy and kind of what you were getting versus QB1 versus QB2 for ASU was not that drastically different. So that concerns me. But uh, to, get to, get, to get back to your, your, your base question, I think it's the run game that concerns me. I think Modster... His inefficiencies as, as a quarterback, as a thrower, he is solid in the run game. And Christopher Brown, he's a big back they have. He's got a marquee step feel to him in terms of his size and what he brings to the table. I know in the offseason, this staff was fired up on him. They think the ceiling's really high for this kid. But as a result, I think every team's been like packing the box. So he hasn't necessarily had the gaudy numbers you'd expect. But got to stop the run. That's got to be Clancy's first point of attack walking into this game. And then flipping the field, if you are Graham Harrell, obviously you're going to do what you do, and hopefully with a little more running back depth and a little more balance. But what uh, what makes this Cal defense a, a decent challenge, as it's been for most of the season for teams? Yeah, once, once again, compa- comparing it week to week, last week against going against uh, ASU, ASU's defense struggled against uh, Washington State's air raid. We were kind of feeling good about the, the potential of a passing attack. As we saw in that first quarter, we thought USC could really get after ASU, uh, their secondary. This week, you're going, to get, going up against a Cal secondary who, at the beginning of the year, that Cal secondary, people were saying this is the best secondary in the country. So you, you talk about those statements against USC's receiving core, you're in for a fun matchup. But as a USC fan, you're saying, hey, we might be in, uh, in for, uh, for a, little, a, a tough stretch here. I think those those DBs are still skilled. I don't think they're all world necessarily like we thought, but they're still very, very good. Do not get me wrong. Very, very good. I think they match up against SC as well as any secondary is going to match up against SC. I think you pair that with Tyler Vaughn's maybe being out or, or where, wherever he's at or banged up. That gives Cal another edge. You talk about SC not having a run game. They're forced to pass. That could play into Cal's favor again. So this is a very good defense. They have Evan Weaver, who you could make the argument he's the best defensive player in the conference. Uh, he's right up there at their middle linebacker spot. So this is a very good defense uh, matchup-wise. If I'm Cal, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm aware of the SC playmakers, but uh, I'm feeling pretty good. And, yeah, I think uh, SC's got to execute for sure. So let's get into a couple more storylines that emerged this week. 
USC is going to be without starting center Brett Nealon for the rest of the regular season. He went down with a calf strain last Saturday. It's a multiple-week injury, so that's just where they're at. Justin Dietich is the guy. He ended up finishing that game, played 31 snaps, had actually gotten in at right guard earlier, so he was a guy that they were already trying to find some opportunity for because they've been pleased with him practice. Well, now he's going to be the starting center. Max, for people who don't, who can't, you know, understand how much that matters what is the significance of a change in center this late in the season for a quarterback yeah or or for offensive line and whole offense yep it's it's always significant don't get me wrong but I think in this offense it's not as significant as other offenses I say that because they have less run uh, they have less run schemes excuse me Um, so there's not as many calls that a new center is really going to have to be accounting for versus an, under a pro-style offense where you have all sorts of calls and fronts and whatnot, that's where it gets tricky. This air raid offense, not as complex. Pa- pass, uh, pass protection schemes, not as many going on. And I also think what's working to Justin's favor is that he has some experience a little bit. He's been, uh, been counted on a little bit before. Don't get me wrong. I think his first start, it's still his first start, but always a big impact. Not as big of an impact with this offense because of scheme and because Keaton's not being asked to go under center. That under center, QB center exchange, that's where you get a little bit a little bit nervous that there could be a fumble there, but a shotgun snap. Uh, I think I saw that Keaton said he didn't even notice it uh, after a couple drives, which is a good sign. And to me, I think Austin Jackson's the one guy, maybe Elijah Vera Tucker, where you really start getting nervous in terms of O-line depth if they lose. Right now, I feel confident. I talked to uh, O-line coach today, uh, Drevno. He feels confident, so I think SE will be good to go. Well, I talked to Drevno this week, too. I talked to him about Divich, but also about Elijah Vera Tucker, who you know how we like to go deep into the PFF data and numbers. And I called up the national rankings for offensive guards in terms of pass protection. I noticed that Vera Tucker's grade was really high, and I want to see where it ranked. He is third nationally among all offensive guards in pass protection. I mean, you're talking about a guy burgeoning into a pretty elite offensive lineman. And given that there was not a lot of optimism for this group coming off of last season, and no one, no one thought, man, we have a future you know, NFL guy clearly in, in, in this mix, maybe Austin Jackson – what Vera Tucker's done this year to emerge has been a really underrated, underacknowledged positive for this offense. Would you agree, Max? Totally, yeah. And in a lot of these podcasts, I kind of revert back to, okay, where were we at in August? In August, there was a lot of concern with this group. And one, they've, they've stayed pretty healthy. They've had guys come on. I th- I've been impressed with Austin Jackson. Uh, I've been impressed with Elijah Vera Tucker. I think as a group... I wish they were – I mean, obviously, I wish they were able to dominate more. But where we were at in August, I've been okay with their performance. By and large, been impressed with Elijah Vera Tucker. And, yeah, I mean, you talk about top three nationally. He's, like, not even allowed a pressure – I mean, very few pressures. It's, it's like, single digit for sure. It might even be, like, under five. But uh, ridiculous uh, performance by 75 for sure. Yeah. So, on the other side of the ball, I had an interesting interview with Isaiah Polamau on Wednesday. And obviously, I, I was among the chorus of critics for Polamau early this season. His tackling was a major liability, both in terms of missed tackles and uh, just poor form, trying to wrap up guys too high and getting dragged for five, ten extra yards. It was a major point of frustration for the fans. 
And I'm going through the PFF data, and I've been noticing this in recent weeks. And five of the last six games, he has almost elite tackling grades. And you just progress down through the game log of a season. It's this stark turnaround all of a sudden after average to below average to liability tackling grades to all of a sudden really steady. And so I talked to him about that, and, and he goes, he goes, yeah, I, I heard what everyone was saying. I heard it. I, t- I took it to heart. I heard it. You know, he made the point, and we all kind of forget this because he was one of those guys that was penciled in, like from the beginning. Like there was no question who the starting safeties were. But this is his first full season as a starter. He played one and a quarter games last year before he got hurt as a redshirt freshman. So maybe we should have anticipated a little more learning on the fly, a little more you know, growth and, and ups and downs from him. But he seems to have solidified himself to a good degree at this point. And I go back to a moment that I mentioned on, on a previous podcast that stood out to me then, but it was cool to talk to Paul Mao about it this week. I said, you know, that Colorado game, the fourth quarter, Greg Burns pulled you out for two series. Like, what was that, what was that moment like for you? And he said, it was humbling. He goes, I, I've never been pulled out of a game because of my play, ever, in my life. It's the first time it's ever happened, and he goes, but I'm really happy he did it. Like I really appreciate him doing that because it just, in his words, it reminded me that, that this is a privilege, that being out here on this field is a privilege every time I'm out there, and I've got to be locked down on my form and technique. I can't be sloppy. And I said, well, what was the discussion in that moment like uh, about? And he goes, you know, it's the same thing as it's been all season, tackling angles, and he, he didn't like – what he saw, he pulled me out and he reinforced that point. And since then, he's just been off the charts in terms of the PFF grades, which, again, is a pretty useful tool because it's people breaking down every player on every play. So they're seeing more than, than we see by just watching the game as as an ensemble all at once. So I put a lot of stock in, the, in, their, in their ratings. He was the highest-graded USC defensive player overall last week, had his third pick of the season, I don't know. I, I'm coming around on on the fact that he's maybe stabilized his season and changed the narrative. And when you project forward, you got to be even more excited about that young secondary as a whole, where it's where it is now and where it can be next year and beyond. I love that. I was a good. I like that. Like that progression. And um, yeah, I made a comment uh, last week on the radio show saying you're not going to improve tackling kind of in November. That that needed to be done back in August. That needed to be done back in September. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, uh, supply a little motivation, get Isaiah Palomao kind of geared in the right direction. And to me, I think the biggest factor, yes, you can do the grades. I'm right with you. I, I do think there's stock in that. Uh, I'm impressed with his kind of trajectory. But, I mean, you talk about he gets ejected versus Oregon, and you kind of felt his impact. I, I was on board with kind of the criticism yeah. early on of, hey, I mean, we kind of thought that we thought he'd be one, uh, one player, and he hasn't necessarily lived up to that. But then that Oregon game happened, he's making a few plays and gets ejected, and you feel his absence. And then to me, I was like, all right, he's, he's a piece for sure. Um, you, you, you knew the talent was there, but in terms of the, the sheer production, you're, there were still a little question marks, but uh, I'm with you. I think he solidified himself as that second safety. Uh, but it'd be fun to kind of have him build on that in the remaining weeks. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great coaching job. And we talked about Burns last week, having a pulse of your players and knowing – Hey, if I sit this guy, it might motivate him. I mean, uh, pulling on the right cord to, to get him to kind of lock in on whatever those tackling issues were. You mentioned angles uh, or motivation or want to or 
light a little fire under him and say, hey, you're not invincible. This isn't just a, a secured safety position. Challenge him a little bit. Credit Burns and uh, credit Isaiah Palomao for not throwing in the towel, not buying into all that negativity and owning it, saying, hey, I'm going to do something about it and going and, uh, and going and doing exactly that. I think either next week or maybe we'll do it as a season wrap-up topic, we should kind of rank the assistant coaches and the ones that we think, assuming a coaching like change happens, have the best case for being retained or just that have done the best job this season. I know we've kind of touched on that topic lightly in the past. I've made some, some cases for Greg Burns, but we haven't gotten into the full gamut of the discussion. I'd like to do that at some point. I love so it. We'll yep. put that on the back burner for a future week. One more topic that came out of the interviews this week, and this was the storyline entering the Arizona State game, is that we were going to find out a lot about this team and how much they still cared about the season, how much it meant to them. While you can certainly lament came a tight game down the end, I don't think you can argue that the team was still trying and playing hard and committed to that game. So I was talking to Christian Rector this week, and and I, I really, he can be insightful sometimes and give us a little more than other guys. And I, I said, you know, no matter what happens the rest of the way, I know you're not going to get to the goals that you probably had at the start of the season. So what would the takeaway be? What, what, what if you guys finish strong and win out, whatever that means, even if there's no backdoor Pac-12 hope, what significance would that have to you? And I, I can't quote him verbatim, but you, you could tell it was not just a, a passing response. Like it, it he was being very sincere. Like it, it would mean everything to me. It's, it's how I go out. It's how I leave my legacy. Maybe it's not a Rose Bowl, but eight and four is a lot better than the alternative of last year. And I asked him. I said, so, so basically, you guys encountered the exact same obstacle as last year. You were five and four, kind of a lost season. That team went off a cliff and is five and seven. This team is is trying to not do that. What's different? And he really kind of insinuated that it's, it's the leadership and the buy-in. You, you can just feel it. You can tell that it matters more to guys this year. Guys maybe were, I don't want to say throw in, throw in the towel, but last year was geared to getting back to the Rose Bowl. And when that was no longer a goal, then nothing else mattered. And it was hard to recalibrate goals and find – you know, secondary adjusted goals to play for. Once the actual goals were out the window, so was the season. And he goes, with this team, it goes back to everything that Aaron Osmus installed in the offseason about accountability and and why it matters and buy-in and playing for each other. And he goes, that stuff is persisting. That stuff is still there. Maybe all the goals aren't, but that stuff is. And that's the difference he sees with this team versus last year. And I predicted it. I think you might have. I forget. I, I thought they were going to win the last three games. I'm yep. going to stay on board with that. And, and, and I think that I've seen enough from this team that I know that they still care and they're trying. They're still a flawed team, and they're capable of losing any game. And my overall assessment of where the program's heading does not change at all. But I do think this team is going to play out the string as best they can. I'm right with you. Yeah, I, I like that analysis by Rector. I think it's spot on. You had a team that was relying on some young guys, and the second you get that second or third loss, for whatever reason, uh, you're used to going to the Cotton Bowl. You're used to going to the Rose Bowl. Those are the expectations. There's probably an element of guys getting complacent or just kind of expecting that was going to happen. So then that, when that goes out the, at the door, the, the, entrance, the, the interest in kind of the season, I guess, 
kind of went out the door as well versus this year. I think guys have the perspective to realize, hey, if we go five and seven again, we're going to be part of like a stretch at USC that's unheard of. Like one of the the, the worst USC teams or, or segments kind of, I mean, I don't know if ever is strong enough, but at least in recent memory, past three decades or so, two, three decades. And as a senior, as a Michael Pittman, as an older guy, John Houston, you don't want that on your record. So I think there's probably like – I mentioned the, the lighting of a fire under Isaiah Palomar. There's probably a lighting under the fire of, uh, of, uh, of all these guys in terms of locking it back in. But uh, I think your point's spot on. You go, you go five, uh, eight and four or, um, rather than kind of five and seven, it's a different vibe. It's, hey, we're trending in the right direction. Had a bunch of injuries. Things didn't go our way, but we finished strong. There's a lot to be said, said with that. And um, there still is that backdoor chance to uh, – do the Pac-12 uh, championship if a Utah stumbles this week. But, no, I like that uh, that verbiage by Christian Rector. And, you know, we had the <clears throat> another big Clay Helton discussion on the podcast earlier this week, so we won't go back there again. But one point that I maybe didn't make, if that season ends the way this one could, things are in a lot different place. Like, like this is the season that he needed to have last year. It still would have been a disappointment, underwhelming, short of goals, but not a calamity where recruits are looking at you going, whoa, this, uh, this ship has sailed. Like if they had just rallied those last three games and, and gotten to a bowl and finished with eight wins, everything's a little different, I think, for him at, at this point. So It's a great that's, point. Yep. That's another what if I guess you can consider. Now, obviously, fans aren't going to spend too much time dwelling on that because they want the change. So they're not going to lament that uh, that this didn't happen last year and that he doesn't have a longer leash. But just something to think about. Okay, well, we are going to save the hot takes for next week because I, I want to make sure the next time I bring my hot takes, I really bring them sizzling to perfection. I'll say this. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll resurface one of my hot takes. Where there was a couple. Oh, please. Well, no, just a couple of weeks ago when we ranked the uh, games that make us the most nervous. I don't know if yes. you remember. I had Cal at two. It was o- Oregon one, Cal at two. You had Cal at five. So this was the game yep. that you uh, were not concerned about. I think when I made that prediction, I was expecting Chase Garbers to be back in this game. If he is back and fully healthy, I kind of like where I position that. I think uh, defensively, Cal matches up pretty solid with this team, especially with the injuries SC has. If Devin Monster plays... I'm not concerned, as she should really take care of business. To me, it's t- two totally different teams. They're about 4-0 under Chase Garbers, 0-4 uh, before that last win versus uh, with, with Monster. But uh, that's a fun hot take to revisit in terms of uh, where we were stacking up the games about a month ago. I, I definitely did not put much uh, concern at all in this game. And you know what? I'm still not. I'm still not. Even though they, they lost to Cal last year, even though it's a road game, even though this is a decent, just a strong defense, let's just get into the predictions. Let's do it. I'll start. I'm I'm not I'm not predicting a comfortable victory like I did last week, and even like I did at Colorado, which didn't totally pan out. I'm gonna go with a close game. I'm gonna respect the numbers, the defensive stats for Cal. I'm gonna respect that this offense is. Uh, not the most consistent unit, but I'm going to say overall USC wins 24 to 21. Ooh, tight one. Um, I'm, 
I'm not sure this team's capable of not winning tight. I think that, that no matter how the game plays out, it'll be tight for some reason in the end. That's just the way it seems to go. Okay, okay. I'll go I'll go uh, 34-14 USC. I, I'm, I don't know what this Chase Garbers deal is. Who knows? But nevertheless, this is uh, not a good offensive football team. And I think SC will get it done. I think uh, two weeks left, you gear up. You're not trying to do all the things we said. You're not trying to repeat last year. I like, yeah, 34-14, USC gets it done. So you're predicting a very thorough fight on to victory for Clay Helton's Trojans. I, I, a fight on <laughs> to victory. Yep, there you go. There you go. Well, it's interesting. I, so I, your your prediction is probably better rooted in the analysis of the matchup. Mine is factoring in a lot of distrust and and fear about what this team is capable of doing to itself over four quarters, not so much the opponent. So uh, two different perspectives, same outcome. We'll see how it plays out. This was a fun podcast, and obviously if you're still listening, you heard everything that happened before, but that, that was great perspective from Max on 2013 on the Ed Orgeron interim run and not being kept on and just kind of taking you inside the locker room on that. That's why we've really enjoyed having Max on the podcast all year as well as the game breakdown analysis. Good show, buddy. Great show. One last little thought-provoking comment. We talked about what-ifs with Coach O. What-ifs with with Justin Wilcox, too. Uh, Clay decided not to hire him as the defensive coordinator at that stage when Clay got the job. Decides to go with Clancy instead. Obviously, Wilcox is at Wisconsin, had some success at Wisconsin, then gets the the bump up as kind of one of those young coaches, gets the bump up as a head coach to Cal. But if he stays at SC, kind of what would have happened there? Who knows? Does SC pay him a bunch of money if he has a lot of success? Another uh, that that one's not nearly as clear cut as Coach O. Don't get me wrong. Who uh, I doubt Justin would have stayed at SC for four or five plus years. He, he probably would have got a head job. But at least it's a it's a fun hypothetical to think of. If especially if you're a fan that's not h- pumped on where cl- things are at with Clancy, kind of where things would have been at defensive corner, co- coordinator wise. If you bring on Justin Wilcox, the old what if game. But uh, nevertheless, a fun fun podcast, and uh, let's get it done on Saturday. College football is fun of what uh, is full of what ifs, and that's kind of the fun of being a fan of this sport, is that decisions made on one coast affect the other coast, and vice versa, and everything in between. And there's just so many interlocking and, and moving parts. But yeah, that was good stuff. All right, we'll come back to you next Tuesday, breaking down whatever happens in this Cal game, and we're gonna have Max on the message board on Trojan Talk on Saturday. We moved to a game day live Q and A last week. We're going to stick with that because it's a really late kickoff. USC kicks off at 8 p.m. at Cal. So there's plenty of time to really get amped and prep for that game. So get on Trojansports.com, on Trojan Talk. At, well, I'll post the time on Friday so you know exactly when it is. And he will be there for an hour to answer all your questions about the game, the matchup. If you want to follow up on the Orgeron stuff and get more insight from him, it's an open forum. It's, it's an hour for you guys to ask anything you want. Straight to the analyst, Max Brown. Be there Saturday. See you then.